God speaks to us in his word in Genesis 3, 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, and he said I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. It's a question uh, for us today, the scene that God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and he's asking uh, this question, where are you? Where are you? It's not a matter of location. God knows everything. God doesn't need help with his iPhone like I do. <laughs> he knows everything. He knows locations. He's not asking about the physical place of Adam. He's not asking about even the spiritual and emotional. How could a God who's all-knowing not know that? This is a question of relationship. This is God asking him, hey, Adam, where are you? What has happened? And that's the question for you today. It's the question for me. It's like, why are you here? Why did God bring you here? Do you think that it's some random coincidence that you showed up here today? Where are you? Where are we? In his love and kindness and accountability, he asked us that. Adam and Eve were not where they had been. They were not where they were supposed to be. They were not where they were created to be, which is with God in the cool of the day. What a sweet picture. It's the place of safety, it's the place of relationship, and the place of life, and the place of rest. They were no longer in that place. Something has happened now that has removed them from that place. It's a word called sin. Sin separates us from God. It separates us from each other. And it has now done that to Adam and Eve. It's permeated their being, it's permeated our being, it's permeated their thoughts and ours and our hearts and our world. What happened in the garden 
is the reason things are so twisted and broken now. I, there are probably several people in the room, I, not probably, I definitely most of us, that ask the question like, why can't things just be okay? <laughs> why, why can't things move up and to the right? Like, why? Why is everything, and especially good things, why are they so hard? And why are they so hard to come by? Do you ever think about this? Think about it with me. Like, I mean, you would have to have shut your brain off to not think like, man, we cannot win for losing. We can't win for losing. Government, other governments, wars, rumors of wars. It's like, has anybody in their lifetime just looked back and thought, you know, I remember there, there was one year, it was just smooth sailing that whole year. 365 days of I had all the money that I ever needed, all my relationships were golden, marriage was perfect. For 365 days, there was no conflict in the earth. Everybody loved the same president. <laughs> Has anybody ever thought that? There was a whole year. It's like, why can't we? Why is there never a year that's just great? Why does it seem like everything moves away from good? The question, the answer to that question is found in this story. There is an answer. And it's actually really important for the way that we perceive and live our lives. It is hard. Your life is hard. And it is true that anything worth having is gonna be hard to get. That's true. It's also true that you can work the field. You can plow, you can do your job, and it's still, no matter how hard you work, there's still some times where it just doesn't work out. That's also true. It's also true that in relationships, you can try everything. You can try every type of communication. You can like bend your personality. I'm, I've had to do this a million times in leadership to go like, okay, I'm trying to communicate. I, I want so desperately for you to hear me, and I'm gonna try all kinds of angles, and you still don't hear me. Has anybody ever been there? Or you still are not heard. I mean, what happened in the Garden of Eden is the reason things are so twisted up. The question that's being asked by God, where are you, has now been flipped on him because in the garden, we assume the role of God and we actually ask him that question. God, things are so hard, where are you? Where are you? And in the right heart, we can align with the psalmist who ask in faith. It is a faith-filled question. It's a worshipful question. The psalmist, David, he says, God, where are you? I'm surrounded by my enemies. He's crying out to God. That's what I wish that we would do, but more times than not, and like 98 to 99% of the time, we are asking the question, assuming ourselves as the one who's accountable now, who God is accountable to. In light of the corruption of the fall, we've now taken it upon ourselves to interrogate God. And not only ask, where are you, God? But we've also become his judge. We do the asking, we hold the accountability. God has not given me what I think I deserve. This is too hard. I've tried so hard and nothing has worked out. God is not worthy of me. The fall has twisted us. It has made us 
assume this lie. It's no longer temptation. It's a thing that we believe that we can be as God. We can know what he knows. And what you see in culture today is a whole world that is constantly, and it's not just out there, it's in here too, where we are constantly saying like, God, why aren't you created in my image? Meaning, why don't you do things that I think you should do? Why don't you give me the life that I think that I deserve? The trouble is, is that at first glance, we might look at this story and we might think, oh, the devil made us do it. This is his fault. But the reality is, is for all of us, that this is a thing that was in Adam and Eve. This is a thing that is in us. The tempter just ignited the thing that was already in them. They were created in the image of God, but were, of course, not God. It's not that they were incapable of sin. But here's what happens. David Atkinson says it this, it is a a choice against every other freedom which is ours in fellowship with God. The freedom not to trust God becomes the doorway to the loss of freedom itself. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. And it's what the Bible calls the lie. It's not just a lie, it's the lie upon which every other lie is built. It is the lie upon which every other sin is built. And that's this lie that you will be God. If you just disobey God, he's out to get you. His character is wrong. He doesn't care about you, he only cares about himself. We assume the role of the questioner. God, where are you? God, who are you? What are you trying to do? Verse one, uh, chapter one, I mean, verse one, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Here's what he said to the woman. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, she knew what God said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Finally, you will be the God that you think that you deserve to be. If you just disobey God, you'll finally get what you think you deserve, which is what only he has. Again, the Bible calls it the lie. The tempter, the serpent has now ignited their flesh and he starts by this. He starts by saying, did God actually say, this is a call to our own sanity. This is, the, this is the enemy telling us, like, this is actually the first case of gaslighting in the history of the world. Did he really say, aren't you the crazy one? Did God actually say, really what it is, it's questioning God's word. It's our very root of questioning God at all which is not wrong to question God. I actually would encourage you to don't be scared of questioning God. He has the answers. But there's a difference between questioning him with hope and then questioning him with scrutiny. The root of this is questioning God's word. Maybe he didn't say that. Maybe this book didn't say that. Maybe I can change his words or this book or I can change his commands or even maybe even change reality itself. 
questioning God's word. Did he actually say that? There's no possible way God could say that. How could a loving God demand something from me? How could a loving God have an opinion on the way that he created us, male and female? How? Doesn't seem right. That's what we do. Do you understand? Questioning God's word. That's the first level of scrutiny. It's at the core of our wondering, did God actually say? And then so on, he says, you will not surely die, the serpent. She, she quotes what God, she, it's in her. She has memorized, yes, God said, I can eat of any tree except that one tree. And the day that I eat of it, I will surely die. I know what God said. Did he actually say that? And then here comes the great lie. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. Can you imagine the tone of which the tempter who hates God, can you imagine the tone of which he tells her this? He's appealing to all of her flesh. You will not surely die. God is a liar. God has lied to you. You won't die. He knows that when you eat of it, that your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil did God actually say is questioning God's word and now the serpent is questioning God's character? Is he good? Does he know what's good for us? Is he a capricious God? Is he an arrogant God? Is he a God that's just playing around with our lives? Is he trying to keep us from life? And most important, can I trust him? We're questioning God's word now and we're questioning his character. The lie is setting in. Temptation is at the door and what happened next is an invitation for it to move into our house. It's not just outside the house. We're about to see it move in the house. Atkinson again says this, sin is the name given to that separation from God which begins with the abandonment of trust in God's goodness and God's love. So I've got a few things here that I want you to see about the fall. And I want you to stay with me because a topic like the fall, for some of you that came in super hyped today to hear, to be in a really happy service, I, first off, it's been happy so far, I think it will get happy again. <laughs> but just stay with me, let's perk up and pay attention because um, there is no good news before, uh, without bad news first. Number one, what happened in the fall was this, Rebellion replaces obedience. Rebellion replaces obedience. Verse six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now imagine this scene. This is Eve looking at the tree. She's pondering it. She's Looking over it, maybe some of you have fruit trees, I don't know, in your house. We have several people here that have fruit trees uh, on their property. To look upon that tree and just to see, like, is this thing doing well? <laughs> I do this a lot with my yard in multiple ways. I've got several uh, evergreens that I bought last year. And I think, I, I don't know how many I bought, but uh, at least three quarters of them have totally died. And so I, I look at them and I'm like, is this thing dying? And then uh, one of my buddies, Jesse Ingram, who's 
a guy that knows plants, he comes up behind me at one point and he goes, all of those are dead. Thank you, Jesse, for the vote of confidence. She's looking at the tree, pondering. The, the lie has already begun to take root in his heart because she's questioning now God because she sees the fruit. The idea of rebelling against him seems more like a benefit to her in the moment. It seems like the right call for her life. It's like a good business decision to rebel against God. And I'm really looking at this tree and I'm going, well, it is good for food. It is delight to the eyes and it is to be desired to make one wise. What an interesting thing for her to say. She's playing God. There's another time that we see this phrase that's only reserved for God when he created heaven and earth and man and woman and at the end of his creation every day, he saw that it was good. Now we have Eve who's already assumed the role of God in her heart and she's, she's the one declaring that the tree that God said was not good, she's saying it is good. The fall has set into her and Adam's heart long before they ever took a bite. She might have a tendency to think Eve is the one that did this. Where was Adam? It's all her fault. Well, where was Adam is a good question. He was with her, by her side, right next to her, but was now functioning counteractive to the way that God designed him. Before we move on, I wanna talk a little bit about this. We talked about this last week. All of our sermons are posted online. Uh, we talked about male and female, how God created Adam and Eve last week. So you can go listen to that, frontlinechurch.com. But let me briefly talk about this. Adam was created as a builder, a cultivator, a protector. Now he's failing in all the ways that God has created him to be. This is what the fall does. It distorts the way that God has made us. Instead of building, he tears down. Instead of cultivating, he tears up. Instead of protecting Eve from the tempter, which is the way that he was created to protect her from the serpent, Adam abdicates and he runs away from conflict and he just lets it happen right by her side. When she needed him the most, he was there the least. Eve, whose name means mother of all living, Eve was created to be a life giver, created to be a helper. The Bible actually describes her in those terms, a helper fit for him. It's also the way that the Bible describes God. <laughs> Same terminology, the helper, the Holy Spirit, the helper. 21 times in the Old Testament, the word helper is used two times to describe woman. 19 to describe God. She was created to be a helper suitable for him, but instead of giving life, she gives death. Instead of helping Adam worship God, she helps him sin. This thing is distorted. It's 180 from the way the fall, what this lie has done is cursed. Both have chosen rebellion over obedience. Similar to what we see in the New Testament, 1 John 2, 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Now think about the tree. It seemed desirable to make one wise. 
is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. They have chosen themselves, the tree, the desire, the appeal to be wise, to be God. And they thought it would lead to life, but it leads to death. The second thing that happens here is that shame replaces vulnerability. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What a weird thing. In our 2023 brain, in our modern world brain, we cannot fathom like why this would be a thing. It's like, who cares? They knew that they were naked. But this is actually very significant. When the Bible talks about the way that God created Adam and Eve, it says very emphatically, they were naked and unashamed. The key word there being unashamed. And now they knew that they were naked. And because they knew it, it's the same word that Adam knew Eve with. It's the same word that Abraham knew Sarah with. They had become intimate with the fact that they were naked. It's set into the very soul shame has. It's I'm no longer looking at you, Eve, through the lens of God and worship. And now I'm looking at you as my competition. I'm seeing all of your blemishes. I'm seeing all of your neg negativity. And I can't get my mind out of just this uh, conflict with you. I am the critiquer now of you. I don't see image of God. And the same with Adam. Eve looks on him and says, I am now your critiquer. I, there's this enmity between man and woman. They were naked and they were ashamed. When, when they were created, they were naked and unashamed. Shame replaces vulnerability. You know how vulnerable for them to be naked, not even think about. I don't think about you in that way. I don't, you, I don't think about you in that way. I just see you as a gift from God. You're God's gift to me and we worship him together. That's vulnerability. You can have all of my thoughts. You can have all of even just myself, my being. I, I feel created to be with you. I feel created to to. to to point you to God. That's what I feel created for. The vulnerability, it's like nothing else really matters. I'm not actually thinking about anything else. I'm, I have a different point of creation. That's vulnerability. Sin has created a new way for them to see each other and it's by not seeing each other at all, by covering themselves up. They're prone to distrust now. They're prone to skepticism. They're prone to distortion. Sin makes man see man as competition and enemy. I've had it said to me before by someone I know, um, vulnerability is a four letter word. Why is that? Why do we see it that way? Why are we so bent on hiding ourselves? Even in this moment right now, I feel the anxiety in the room. I feel like some of you are like, wait a minute. <laughs> Is he going to try to get in my personal life? Is he going to imply that I need to let people know about my finances? 
is this preacher going to, to so dare to recommend that I let people know about my marriage struggles or my relationship struggle or the patterns in my life? How dare he? That's my life. I have it. It's mine. It's my bank account. It's my relationship. It's even my sin struggle. That's not for him to know. That's not for anybody to know. That's mine. Why are we so against vulnerability? Why does it come out like wickedness to us? Like it's, it's this, it just sets us off. Why? Started here in the garden. The fall shattered our openness. The Bible says clearly, confess one to another so that you may be healed. Confess one to another so that you may be healed. Not like I have a private confession with God or I go in some place and there's a priest on the other side and only me and him know. This is confess one to another so that you may be healed, which is a whole nother sermon, but I wonder if some of us in the room today haven't got the kind of healing that we need because we're so scared of vulnerability. We become addicted to covering up. It makes us think that we're on our own and that everyone else is out to expose us. And Look, I, hey, believe me, I, I, I want to be a safe man I want this church to be the safest place on earth. We work hard with, with our children. You have to jump through several hoops to even get to serve our kids. We keep an eye on all of that. That's so very important to us. It would kind of blow some of your, the visitors in the room would blow your mind what you have to do to even be a part of our kids' ministry. Background checks and videos and, and go through a whole process. You have to be here. You have to either be a member here or be here for a long period of time. It matters to us. I want this church to be so safe, but I also acknowledge that because of the fall, because of our hatred for vulnerability, we become addicted to safe places and safe people in our culture and world. It's the thing that we fall back on now. Those terms have permeated our culture in every way. And again, well, I think we do need to be safe people, I'm telling you. It still doesn't give us the kind of safety we desperately long for. The thing that we want more than anything else is the safety of the living God. We're just constantly trying to fabricate that in the world. And the only place you get it for real is in him. Psalms talk about him being a shelter, a hide under the shelter of your wings. They talk about him being a strong tower that we run into. Verse eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is such a cool picture. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Both beautiful and sad, God longs to be with them. Can you imagine Elohim, Yahweh, God, our Father, the Lord God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He has an appointment. It's with him. It's with Adam. His presence, the walk, is just awesome. It's both beautiful and sad. God longs to be with them, 
man is actively trying to hide from God. Fear of the Lord has become afraid of God. The very one who gives life and companionship is now seen as a tyrant and a threat. Man and woman are separated from each other and they're also separated from God. Openness and vulnerability are gone. God is a threat. You are a threat. The only person I can trust is me. That's what's happening here in the fall. Number three, blaming replaces responsibility. Shame replaces vulnerability and now blaming replaces responsibility. In verse 11, who told you that you were naked? God saying, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Man, it's the woman that you gave me, God. So man is actually blaming her and more importantly, he's blaming God. This is your fault, God. The woman says, the serpent made me do it. Neither take responsibility. God comes to the man first because it's the man's responsibility to give an account for the things that he's been given to protect. But guilt has set in now. It's symptom is blame shifting. It's not my fault. There's no way it possibly could be because I took of the tree and now what I believe is that I only need me and I am the governor of my domain. I can make the world in my image. There's no way it's me. It has to be you. Actually, God has to be you because you're the one that gave me this woman and this woman that you gave me caused me to do that. Wasn't me, it was her by way of you. And she says, the serpent made me do it. Guilt has set firmly in. Again, the symptom of the guilt is blame shifting. The covering up in the garden wasn't only about fig leaves. They were in the business of covering up in every way, making sure that they were straight at the expense of everybody else. Nothing is truly my fault or responsibility. I believe the lie. That's that it's all on someone else, the devil, the other person, or primarily God. When we fail to take responsibility for our own sin, we have let this lie take up residence in our home. It's no longer the temptation at the door. It's no longer a thing that's just, we kind of believe. Now that is our very home. We're so quick to point to anyone other than ourselves. So slow to take ownership over myself. I do this, you do it. Even for those that participate in the church, we have a tendency to think that it's our leader's job to follow Jesus for us, to read our minds, to say the right thing at the right time and provide all of your needs according to our riches and glory, which we don't have. Problem is, is that I need the same amount of grace that you need. We all need God. This type of thinking just perpetuates the lie within us. It turns, in turn, leaves us in the same state of wanting and wishing and always chasing our tail for something that only God can give. Ownership of ourselves, our thoughts, our motivations, our action, that is the foundation for repentance and restoration. You cannot be repenting. 
You cannot be, uh, you cannot be restored until you are ready to own your own life. The thing about the garden is this, the thing about assuming that it was the devil's fault and that we wouldn't be in the place without the devil, that's true, partially, but it was also in them. It was their sin. They chose to believe. And that's true for you today. That's true for me as well. That's true for all of us. It's like, it's in us. It's on us. There can be no repentance until we're ready to go, this is me. I chose to be away from God. I chose my own life of rebellion and sin. I did that. It's tragic what's happened now in the garden. So much was promised to them by the serpent and none of it delivered. As a matter of fact, the opposite. The promise of freedom from God to be gods of their own. But what they got in return is slavery to sin and shame. There's a promise of life. They got death. Spiritually, immediate death. And eventually, this is where death entered in the world, physical death. The promise of pleasure, and they got guilt. There was a promise of self-sustenance. But what they got is shame and blame shifting, and they actually become bound. The garden was created for life, and in this moment, it gives birth to death. In the next several verses, which is next week's sermon, we'll talk about what the ramifications are of their sin, known as the curse. All those promises, none of them delivered. There's an eventual act, though, of God at the end of chapter three. God cuts Adam and Eve off from the place of life, the Garden of Eden. He places a cherubim, angel, with a flaming sword guarding the gate of the garden so that no man can enter, that the only way that you could possibly get back into the garden is you have to go through that sword. Verse 23 says, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here's the thing about the garden. We are, because of the way that we live, partly because of how consumeristic we are at times, we think of the garden, we think of that as being paradise because of all the stuff. All the plants, I imagine trees. I'm like, this is probably like a Disney, you know, like a 50s or 60s Disney movie where the deer come up and talk to you and you're best friends with the birds, I don't know. That's what the Garden of Eden feels like to me. It seems like that. And that's why the garden must have been so cool because like a Disney cruise. <laughs> I've now worn out the Disney uh, references. But the reality is this, it wasn't the stuff in the garden that made it paradise. The, the, what made it paradise was the very presence of the living God, was that God walks in the garden in the cool of the day. That's what made it that. It's not the trees or the animals or the whatevers. It's God's presence. And the worst thing that happened from the fall was the loss of the presence of God. Sin has created a chasm now between us and our maker. He's placed a guard and a flaming sword there so that no man would be able to get back to the place of his presence. We simply, <laughs> you just are not strong enough. I mean, that's the reality. 
Imagine going up against the, the angel of the Lord, cherubim, which is probably multiple angels who are giant and strong and have never-ending power <laughs> and with a f- giant sword aflame. Imagine like you thinking like, well, I think I could probably run past him really quick. There's no way. There's no way. God's holiness won't allow it. Do you understand what I'm saying? The holiness of God, that impenetrable holiness, that white hot righteousness whose face shines brighter than the sun. There's no way you can get into that, the state that we're in right now. Somebody has got to go through the sword. There's, how are we restored to the presence of God? You come up with something, maybe I'll come up with something, we'll try it, but we've been doing that for thousands of years. The people of God have tried the law and they've tried sacrifice and they've tried to live perfectly and they tried even new types of sacrifices like one sacrifice a year, that day of atonement. If we can just do that, then maybe we'll survive. If we keep the law, I mean, people have believed if they just live a good life, do okay, are generally nice people, I'll get to heaven. But (laughs) there's a flaming sword I mean, this is not like try harder, do better. There's just no way. There's no way. It's the holiness of God. We can't, we somehow, sin can't enter into his presence. You understand what I'm saying? Someone's got to go through it for us. And what happened with Jesus is that's exactly what he did. For you and for me, Jesus fell on the sword of judgment. He fell upon the sword of sin. He fell upon the sword of shame and guilt and blame. He... Like when we were stripped naked and we saw it, Jesus himself was stripped naked on our behalf on the cross. And now he clothes us not in fig leaves, but he clothes us in righteousness, in his righteousness. Jesus fell on the sword. He, his side was pierced for us on the cross. And out of his side, our wounds are healed. Jesus Jesus proves that the serpent was lying, that God is good and that he does care and that he is for us and that he will go to every length to make sure that we have a way past the sword. In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam, obey me about the tree and you will live. Obey me about the tree and you will live. There's two trees in the garden, centerpiece of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of disobedience, knowledge of good and evil. Obey me about the tree of disobedience and you will live. Adam disobeyed. In the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus told the father, I will obey you about the tree and I will die. Christ goes to the tree for us. He gives us the tree of life that only he deserves. It was you that took a bite. It was me that took a bite. That was us. It's not something that just happened. We do this all the time. We continue to take the bite of I'm God, I can control my own destiny. And what Jesus does is one time and for all, if you trusted in him, he, no matter that, He takes on the tree of life that only he deserves and gives you what you don't deserve. 
That's the gospel. When Jesus died, the veil of the temple was torn right upon his death. When he died, in the temple of God, you had a place which was to be seen as the resting place of God, the house of his presence, that one room that no one could just enter in lest they die. It was the holy of holies. There was a veil that separated that. All the other courts from that one room in the temple. When Jesus died, the veil was torn all the way in two. That let us know he's taken the flaming sword for us. We can now be restored to the presence of God. How are you doubting the goodness of God today? How are you hiding from his presence? Have you forgotten about how good he is? I mean, it's the question that he asked Adam is the question for you and me. Where are you? Where are you? We're gonna take communion together. As we take communion, I wanna invite you to be thinking about those things. Be thinking about your place in the cool of the day with God. Maybe there's several of us in the room that have neglected him, neglected the reality of our own self. I'm gonna invite you to self-examine today. Let's stand together.